Uh, so we're just going to go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Abigail Brooks. I'm a pharmacist uh, specializing in pain management at the West Palm Beach VA in Florida. And my colleague is Courtney Kamenick. She's also a pain management clinical pharmacy specialist at the Columbia, Missouri VA. So we actually did our PGY2 uh, pain management training together at the West Palm Beach VA. And today we're going to be talking about um, antiplatelet and anticoagulation management for interventional spine and pain procedures. So this is something that I feel not only do pharmacists have a key role in, but nursing staff, the physicians ordering the pain procedure, intervention and referring the patient for the intervention, and then of course the physician doing the actual procedure or intervention. This is a process with a lot of moving parts at my facility and something that we're working to come up with a better process for. Just because documentation is important, patient counseling and education is important because obviously we're looking to keep the patient safe. So there's our information. Uh, neither, of us, neither of us have anything to disclose. Um, though we are employees of the federal government, this presentation is our personal opinions and does not reflect any sort of official opinion of the federal government or VA. So learning objectives for today, we're going to compare the mechanisms of action, dosing, and clinical nuances for antiplatelets and anticoagulation medications with special focus on the newer direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs. So this medication class so it consists of like dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban. It's been known by several different names, so NOAX as well as SOAX, T-S-O-A-C-S. But the nomenclature, according to my cardiology connections now, is DOAX. You want to we want to help you identify risk factors for bleeding and thromboembolism in patients preparing for interventional spine and pain procedures. And then review the guideline recommendations released by ASRA in 2015. And apply this to patient case scenarios. So we will make sure you're awake this morning. So in the, you know, in the setting especially of the opioid epidemic, as some people might say, or the, the look or the need to reduce medication use, I feel like interventional pain procedures is becoming more and more of a, of a potential option for different patients. Um, and with that comes lots of nuances in managing and preparing these patients to make sure that the procedure is done safely. So in 2012, it was estimated that approximately 25% of patients presenting for an interventional spine or pain procedure was on antithrombotic therapy. Approximately 41% of all adults over the age of 40 in the United States take an aspirin regularly. So even something like an aspirin, we have to counsel the patient on depending on the procedure. And then in Medicare beneficiaries, the use of interventional spine pain procedures increased significantly from 2000 to 2013. So over 100% increase utilizing services like these. Um, with a, spe a specific increase in facet joint injections and sacroiliac joint blocks. So the ASRA guidelines, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, or ASRA for short, as I mentioned, they were released in 2015, published in the ASRA journal, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Management, and it was developed by a committee that was appointed to develop these guidelines. And as you can see here, it was endorsed by several well-known pain uh, bodies. So the evidence is literature-based when it's available. However, there's not a lot of literature or randomized controlled trials looking at this type of material. So otherwise, it's pharmacology-driven or based on expert opinion. So because of this, there's no strength in grading of recommendations provided. 
but it gives good guidance at least. So I'm not the physician doing the pain procedure, but um, when you are doing a pain procedure, there's a couple different things to keep in mind. These different variables will probably impact how, you do, how the pain procedure is done and what the risk factors are for the patient. So of course you wanna make sure that you have the appropriate imaging done, whether it's x-ray, CT, or MRI, um, and review that before, before doing the procedure. Review previous surgical intervention or pain procedure uh, interventions, especially because scarring at the targeted site can uh, you know, be a predictor for risks of different kinds. Uh, depending on the area of the pain procedure, you know, risk for needle damage to different vasculature, of course. And then technique-related factors, so um, not just proximity to vascular structures, but also neurological structure. Um, is the location in a confined or non-confined space? Is there an anticipated or end up needing to be multiple passes for the procedure? Um, so multiple attempts to get to the right place. Use of contrast if the patient has any allergies of any kind and use of fluoroscopy. So these are just some of the potential things that come up uh, in the procedure room. So here we have a list of the different pain procedures categorized as per ASRA based on their risk for bleeding. So we have high risk, intermediate risk, and low risk. Um, and the different um, abbreviations in that box there, we have the legend for you. But the high-risk procedures, spinal cord stimulator, trial and implant, intrathecal catheter and pump implant, vertebral augmentation, and epiduroscopy and epidural decompression. Intermediate risk, um, interlaminar, all different kinds of epidural steroid injections, medial branch blocks and RFAs, uh, sympathetic blocks, peripheral nerve stimulators, and then low-risk procedures are more like trigger point injections or SI joint injections. So depending on your facility and what your pain, your pain physicians or anesthesiologists um, or interventional physicians are trained in or experienced in, you may offer some or all of these interventional pain procedures. But really the risk for bleeding for the different pain procedures will help guide what you're going to do in terms of the antiplatelet and anticoagulation therapy. So this is an important thing to keep in mind. So for time purposes, we're not going to get into the coagulation cascade in great detail, but these are just some of the main key players in the coagulation cascade. So when we're talking about the different drugs, a lot of these um, clotting factors and things are what's impacted or where the drug is working. So what are some risk factors for bleeding if a patient's already on anticoagulation therapy? So this is based on the patient themselves. I'm not going to read through this whole list, but just highlight a couple things. So age greater than 65 years of age, if they have a history of a previous bleed, if they have active cancer or metastatic cancer, that may even preclude the use of doing a pain procedure, depending on the situation. Uh, renal or liver failure, diabetes. If you have atrial fibrillation, you can calculate what's called a has-blood score to kind of look at the risk for potential for bleeding. So some of the components in that include hypertension and stroke. Um, anemia, obviously if they're on antiplatelet therapy as well as anticoagulation therapy, if they have a history of frequent falls or alcohol abuse, and if they're using any NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, all of those increase the risk for bleeding. So this table here is looking at risk factors for bleeding uh, with warfarin specifically. So depending on the indication for the anticoagulant and how long the patient's on the anticoagulant, 
We know that the risk for bleeding, and depending on the independent patient risk factors, the risk for bleeding can vary over time. So this table is just kind of highlighting that. Um, what's interesting is that some of the DOACs may be preferred um, because there's less monitoring involved and things like that. Um, apixaban is shown to have less bleeding risk, but then some people with dabigatran, you may be more concerned about GI bleeding, and Courtney will go into the different DOACs. But warfarin for a lot of patients is still very commonly used, so it's still something that the provider needs to know about and manage. So here, uh, similar tables for, you can't really see them, but um, similar tables for the different DOACs. So dabigatran, rivaroxaban, and apixaban are the ones that we're going to be talking about today. So patient risk factors for thromboembolism, so the potential of developing a clot, either a PE or a, uh, a DVT. So it depends on the indication for the anticoagulation. So we have atrial fibrillation, mechanical heart valve, and venous thromboembolism, and then each of those categories have high, moderate, and low risk. And so depending on where that patient falls into that, those risk categories, you may be more concerned about thrombo thromboembolism for various reasons. And of course, depending on the indication and how long ago things like the venous thromboembolism or clot took place, or depending on how long ago the patient had a cardiac event, that may also preclude their ability to have an elective, essentially, pain procedure. So all of these things need to be taken into consideration. So the, some of the newer guidelines look at the CHADS-2 score or the CHADS-VAS score, um, but that's not the only thing that the, that the anticoagulation clinic or the cardiologist may use to determine if a patient uh, needs bridge therapy, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. There's also evidence to support that chronic pain itself may actually elicit in a, a hypercoagulable state in the patient. Um, so having this chronic psychosocial stress environment leads to increased procoagulant molecules, decreased fibrolytic capacity, and increased platelet activity. So some of our patients at baseline may be at hyper, or, you know, increased risk for uh, coagulation difficulties or complications. So again, this is probably very procedure or, or procedure facility specific, but some of the labs that we look at before a patient goes down to the procedure room is the international normalized ratio or INR, especially if somebody has been on warfarin and instructed to hold it, you want to make sure that it's normalized. Platelets, hemoglobin, hematocrit, um, those may be done. You may just want to make sure those are done within a certain time period before the pain procedure is scheduled. And then typically the morning of uh, or the day of the procedure, we're checking blood pressure, heart rate, blood glucose, and renal function. You want to make sure that the renal function has been recently assessed in patients who are taking DOAC anticoagulants because that will impact how long the medication may be held for. So some things to keep in mind. And with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague. So the first group of medications we wanted to discuss were NSAIDs. And so NSAIDs um, work by inhibiting COX-1 and COX-2, depending on um, what group of medications. Generally, they're non-selective, but we do have celecoxib, which is particularly selective for COX-2. Um, it's important to note that COX-1 is found in platelets. And like I said, there's differences in how selective they are for either the COX-2 or COX-1. Um, indomethacin, aspirin, they have high COX-1 selectivity, whereas etodilac, meloxicam, silicoxib are more COX-2 selective. And this comes into play because COX-2 selective inhibitors 
do not alter platelet function. So doses of up to celecoxib 1,200 milligrams per day for 10 days do not impact platelet aggregation. So they're not associated with increased surgical blood loss. So therefore, they're not recommended to be stopped in the setting of a procedure. All other NSAIDs, and we're talking about non-aspirin NSAIDs, can be discontinued prior to a procedure, um, not having to worry about any sort of cardiovascular or cerebrovascular issue with discontinuing these medications. So for consideration for discontinuation, want to think about discontinuing them in a high-risk procedure, and then for patients getting an interlaminar cervical ESI or a stellate ganglion block, which are considered intermediate-risk procedures. And NSAIDs, you don't, it's not a blanket. This is an NSAID, we're going to stop it this many days beforehand. It's actually based upon the NSAID half-life. In most patients, discontinuing an NSAID five, lives, five half-lives prior to the procedure is typically sufficient. However, this would be, um, there would be some exceptions in patients who have hypoalbuminemia or hepatic dysfunction or renal dysfunction including nephrotic syndrome because there would be a change in the amount of albumin present and NSAIDs are very highly um, protein bound. So if they're less protein av available for binding, then there's going to be an increased number, an increased amount of unbound NSAIDs. So this table looks at different NSAIDs, their half-lives, and then um, gives you an idea of at what point prior to the procedure these should be discontinued. So for instance, diclofenac, has a half-life of one to two hours, um, so it can be discontinued one day prior to the procedure. Medications like paroxicam, though, have, very, have longer half-lives, so they recommend discontinuing up to 10 days prior. They can be resumed 24 hours after the procedure. Moving on to antiplatelets, which are a little bit trickier. So aspirin irreversibly inhibits COX-1 and thromboxane production, so we have Aspirin's going to hang around for the whole time that platelet is, is there. So it's the lifespan of the platelet, which is 7 to 10 days. Um, so again, it's a patient and procedure-specific decision. Some considerations include what are they taking the aspirin for? Is it for primary prophylaxis of a cardiovascular event? Or is it for secondary pr prophylaxis? Have they already had an event? Um, what kind of vascular anatomy there, how invasive is the procedure, what's the risk of, of bleeding, and so on, and what kind of other interacting medications are they on. Now, there are risks with discontinuing aspirin, um, especially if the patient is on it for secondary prophylaxis. Um, it, it's been shown to decrease the risk for stroke and MI by 25 to 30 percent. And then it's estimated that about 10% of cardiovascular events are due to the discontinuation of, of aspirin. And for an acute coronary syndrome, for instance, um, after discontinuing aspirin, an event is 8.5 plus or minus 3.6 days. So that would be kind of in the time frame of when you might be considering discontinuing aspirin for a procedure. And then there's also thought to be platelet rebound phenomenon leading to a prothrombotic state. However, there's somewhat unclear um, benefits for primary prevention. So in primary prophylaxis, if it's a high-risk procedure, the guidelines recommend discontinuing six days prior. For intermediate risk procedures, specifically interlaminar, cervical ESI, and stellate ganglion blocks, again, discontinue six days prior. However, for low-risk procedures, they don't recommend discontinuing aspirin.
secondary prophylaxis and intermediate prophylaxis here. Um, for secondary prophylaxis and high risk and intermediate risk procedures, should be shared assessment and risk stratification between the patient and other providers involved in the patient's care, whether or not we should be discontinuing the aspirin prior to a procedure. If it is discontinued, they recommend holding it six days prior for a high-risk procedure and four days prior for an intermediate procedure, low-risk procedure, they don't recommend discontinuing it. And again, it's a risk-to-benefit um, decision weighing the risks of bleeding versus the cardiovascular and cerebrovascular potential events that it can occur with discontinuing aspirin, and it's important, obviously, to document that discussion. It can be resumed 24 hours after the procedure. Dipyramidol and aspirin, so this is used to prevent um, stroke in patients with trans transient ischemic events, and it works by inhibiting phosphodiesterase and causes vasodilation. Typically dose 25 milligrams of aspirin with 200 milligrams of extended release dipyramidol twice daily. They recommend discontinuing it 48 hours prior to a procedure and then resuming it 24 hours after. However, that medication is not so common anymore. You're probably more likely to see clopidogrel um, as the most common P2Y12 inhibitor. And they work by inhibiting the P2Y12 ADP receptor, which is responsible for the final step of platelet aggregation. And they're used for multiple reasons, like peripheral vascular disease, coronary syndrome, and cerebral vascular ischemic events. Um, I won't bore you with the dosing, but you're probably likely going to most likely see clopidogrel, 75 milligrams a day. Um, Prazurel, for instance, has um, different dosing based on the weight of the patient and their age. Um, just an important, interesting thing to point out. So for low-risk procedures, typically doesn't require these medications to be discontinued. But again, weigh the risks and benefits and have a shared discussion. So are they elderly? Do they have advanced liver or renal disease? Do they have history of bleeding? Are they on other antiplatelet medications? For medium and high-risk procedures, the guidelines suggest discontinuing seven days before the procedure. And if they're a high risk for thromboembolic events, to resume it, um, discontinue five days prior to the procedure. And previously to these guidelines, for those of you um, that have looked into this topic before, there was about like 10 different guidelines by so-and-so. They had their own guideline. Um, so there are still some other guidelines out there. Scandinavian guidelines say five days before procedure. American College of Cardiology say seven to 10 days, but ASRA says seven. Um, they typically recommend resuming the clopidogrel 12 hours after the procedure. For prazugrel and ticagrelor, prazugrel they recommend discontinuing 7 to 10 days before the procedure and resuming 24 hours after. And then for ticagrelor, they say a 5-day um, window before a medium and high-risk procedure. And again, resuming after 24 hours. All right, so we're going to switch one more time. So I'm going to touch on uh, parenteral anticoagulants and then our more traditional vitamin K antagonist, warfarin. So first to talk about the parental anticoagulants, so one of the most common ones is heparin, either IV or sub-Q. Um, heparin's mechanism of action is through inhibition of thrombin, factor 10A, factor 9A, factor 11A, and factor 12A. 
So in our practice setting, we have patients who are admitted to the inpatient unit who may be considered for pain procedures. They may need a pain procedure to help them be able to go home um, and function better. Or we also see patients as an outpatient setting. So I've seen where this has come up, uh, actually, patients on heparin being considered for pain procedures. So the time to effect with heparin IV is immediate, whereas for sub-Q use, it takes about an hour. Therapeutic effect of heparin uh, ceases after about four to six hours after administration. Monitoring is through the activated partial thromboplastin time, or APTT. So when you're looking to get a therapeutic heparin dose, you're monitoring the APTT and looking to get it to 1.5 to 2.5 times the baseline level, and that's based on your facility's dosing protocol. The reversal agent for heparin is protamine. Um, and as we'll talk about some of the other newer agents um, that have come out, some of these have reversal agents and some of them don't. So that's also something to keep in the back of your mind. Heparin, um, of course, increases the patient's risk for bleeding and has risk for other complications like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HID. So when we're looking at heparin use, uh, depending on the indication, so typically for most inpatients that are considering an elective pain procedure, they've been getting uh, heparin sub-Q for prophylaxis of DVT and PE in the hospital. So that's typically 5,000 units sub-Q every 8 or 12 hours. Um, if you're using heparin for the treatment of DVT or other cardiac issues, I'm not so sure that uh, our pain physician or most pain physicians would consider doing an elective pain procedure in those patients. Just because if the patient's getting actively treated for a new event like that, their risk for uh, thromboembolism or bleeding would be very, very high if you were to stop the heparin. Indication, using heparin for these other indications is weight-based. And again, when I was doing uh, a literature search, I mean, there's all kinds of protocols and stuff out there. So most facilities have their own protocols and established that pharmacists or providers can follow. So when you're talking about heparin, you're also going to be worried about developing a spinal hematoma because heparin inhibits platelet function, which contributes to hemorrhagic effects. So really what we're looking at here is the time that the heparin was started. So in a patient who had neuraxial procedures and subsequent anticoagulation, if they had heparinization within one hour of the dural procedure, if they were on concomitant aspirin therapy or traumatic spinal punctures, they were potentially more at risk for developing a spinal hematoma. Ruff and Doherty found that 7 of 342 patients who were subsequently heparinized within one hour developed spinal hematoma, and none in the control group developed spinal hematoma. So it's very, very important, like we look at the BCMA or barcode medication administration to determine when was the patient's actual last dose of heparin. Um, because if the patient, if the nurse was instructed to hold the heparin and that didn't end up happening for some reason or the order wasn't discontinued, then the patient can't come down to the pain procedure room and have the procedure done. So it's very, very important to look at that closely. Um, when you're talking about heparin IV for a neuraxial procedure, they recommend stopping uh, the heparin two to four hours pre-procedure. If you're having an interventional pain procedure, again, stopping, the recommendation is to stop four hours pre-procedure. And this four-hour interval is especially recommended for patients uh, who are undergoing high-risk procedures. And then you would consider resuming therapy a minimum of two hours post-procedure. If it was a moderate or high-risk procedure and it ended up being bloody, the recommendation is to make it more like a 24-hour interval before you consider restarting heparin therapy.
So again, that would need to be communicated to the patient, but also to the inpatient treatment team. So for heparin uh, dosing at sub-Q, again, that's typically for prophylaxis. Uh, low dose twice daily sub-Q heparin is not a contraindication to neuraxial injections. Rare cases of spinal hematoma have been reported in this setting. Um, if, if you're going to consider an interventional pain procedure, it's preferably done in patients who are on BID sub-Q heparin. But I know at my facility, at least, I think Q8 hours is more commonly seen. They, the last dose of sub-Q heparin should be at least 8 to 10 hours before the pain procedure, and it can be restarted a minimum of 2 hours post-procedure. So anoxaparin, or Lovenox, is a low molecular weight heparin. It has higher and more predictable bioavailability than standard heparin, um, major anticoagulation effect via activation of antithrombin. And it exhibits a dose-dependent antithrombotic effect that's assessed by anti-10A activity level. So you can actually measure an anti-10A level, but in clinical practice, that's not always done. It really depends on the patient and kind of the circumstances around that. But it is available if you need to monitor it. So here's the dosing for anoxaparin. Again, the important thing is that anoxaparin can be used for prophylax at prophylactic doses as well as treatment doses. So it's very, very important to know the indication for why the patient's being prescribed anoxaparin because that's going to help tr drive your treatment decision. And it also requires renal dosing. So you also want to uh, assess the patient's renal function. So ASRA recommends a 12-hour interval hold on a prophylactic dose of anoxaparin whereas um, they recommend a 24-hour interval hold with patients who are on therapeutic doses of anoxaparin. And then uh, low molecular weight heparins can be resumed four hours post-low-risk pain procedure. However, they recommend it be more like 12 or 24 hours after medium and high-risk pain procedures. And there were some safety con uh, communications that were released from the FDA because of the, the Recommendation used to be more like two hours post-procedure, and then there were multiple reports of spinal hematoma with various risk factors, so they just went ahead and changed it to four hours for safety. Fondaparinox is another type of parenteral anticoagulant. It inhibits factor 10A, so its half-life is anywhere from 17 to 21 hours, so it's dosed once daily compared to anoxaparin. Uh, the indications and dosing are listed there. Again, the key thing is here it can be used for prophylaxis as well as treatment. So that's going to be key in helping drive your decision making. Uh, ASRA recommends against the use of fondaparinox in the presence of an indwelling epidural catheter um, just because of the risk for potential bleeding or complications. So if it's pre-procedure or medium or high risk, they recommend stopping fondaparinox five, five half-life intervals before, which is approximately three or four days. Um, if it's a low-risk procedure, again, shared assessment and risk stratification in conjunction with a treating physician or a treatment team is uh, appropriate or necessary. If you're needing a more conservative approach, a two, a two half-life interval should be adequate. And then post-procedure, you would resume fondaparinox about 24 hours after the procedure. And when we're saying shared risk assessment, um, depending on your facility, that could be, or the patient, that could be the primary care provider, that could be the cardiologist, that could be the anticoagulation clinic, whoever's kind of owning that patient's anticoagulation or antiplatelet treatment. 
really is the one that we, at least our practices, they have to give the patient clearance to hold the drug in order to do the pain procedure, and that's documented accordingly. Warfarin, our more traditional vitamin K antagonist. It inhibits several different clotting factors, uh, 7, 9, 10, and 12, or SNOT. It also inhibits protein CNS. But what's key about warfarin is that it's going to take four or five days for the therapeutic effect to really uh, reach what we're looking for. So again, timing, we'll get into the timing of it, but if the patient ends up needing to start warfarin for some reason, if it's within a certain window, the patient may still be eligible to have a pain procedure. So warfarin is indicated for the prophylaxis and treatment of uh, VTE, as well as prophylaxis of uh, VTE in patients with atrial fibrillation or cardiac valve replacement, as well as potential um, patients who have a history of MI. So how do you monitor warfarin? The International Normalized Ratio, or INR, it has a very narrow therapeutic index. So typically the INR goal range is anywhere from 2 to 3, but there are some patients where the uh, INR goal range is more like 2.5 to 3.5. So that's also going to be something key to know about your patient. And like I said, in our facility, the practice is if the patient was on warfarin instructed to hold the warfarin, the INR is checked the day of the procedure. Dosing of warfarin, very complex, very much based on the individual and their own patient risk factors. Um, Older patients tend to require less warfarin, so I can't say there's a one-size-fits-all here. But if you ever have to reverse uh, a, a super therapeutic INR, we have vitamin K, which can be administered oral or IV. But typically, if a patient comes to the ping procedure room, their INR is checked and it's too high, we would just reschedule the procedure. Okay, so clinical data for warfarin. So this is where they're talking about kind of the timing of when was the first dose of warfarin and when would the patient still be eligible to have a pain procedure. Um, so 12 to 16 hours after initial warfarin intake, it was found that the level of clotting factor 7 was greater than 40%. So ASRA recommends that if you're performing neuraxial anesthesia or removing epidural catheters within 24 hours of initial warfarin intake, it's probably safe. But if the warfarin was started or administ first administered more than 24 hours before the neuraxial injection, they recommend that the INR is checked before you consider proceeding. Warfarin also increases the risk of spinal hematoma. And like I mentioned, it's very much dependent on the patient's age, the dose of warfarin, what was their INR before the procedure, things like that. So if you need to remove an epidural catheter in patients who were started on warfarin, Two papers showed the absence of spinal hematoma when the epidural catheter was removed two to three days after warfarin was started, but they didn't measure concentrations of the clotting factors. So they recommend uh, removing the epidural catheter within 48 hours uh, of starting warfarin. That's considered probably safe. But more than two days after starting warfarin, you're just into this unknown territory, and the patient may already be past that anticoagulated state where the risk of bleeding is too great. So for low-risk procedures, the decision to stop warfarin should be done in coordination with the treating physician, so a shared risk assessment again. And then many of these procedures may be safe, uh, the low-risk procedures, that is, may be safe in the presence of a therapeutic INR, so an INR less than three. 
For intermediate and high-risk procedures, warfarin should be discontinued five days prior to the procedure and ensure that the INR has been normalized before, before proceeding with the procedure. And of course, checking with the patient when they check in for the procedure. How long ago have you been holding your warfarin? When did you stop it? Make sure they followed your instructions. Standard dosing warfarin, you would resume 24 hours after the procedure. Can you see that? Okay, I can't see it too well on my screen. But for if the patient was on bridge therapy, so the provider decided that their, their risk for thromboembolism was very high and they were bridged, they would resume or start low molecular weight heparin two hours after the procedure and then resume 20, warfarin 24 hours after the procedure. The chest guidelines, so, you know, they're the ones who are kind of the, car they're the cardiology experts when it comes to anticoagulation management. They recommend pre-surgery stopping warfarin five days beforehand, so that matches the ASRA recommendations. And then post-surgery resuming warfarin 12 to 24 hours, <clears throat> excuse me, after surgery. So either, either the evening after the surgery or the next morning. Okay, so bridge therapy. So I'm not going to... Pretend like I'm an anticoagulation expert. I consulted with an my anticoagulation clinical pharmacy specialist at my facility in putting this, this uh, presentation together. Bridge therapy has become somewhat controversial. So in patients where you're very much concerned about the risk for thromboembolism or other complications when their warfarin or other anticoagulant is on hold, that's when we would consider bridge therapy. The new tr school of thought or what the new data is showing is that patients who are bridged may actually be more likely to have a bleeding event and there's really no change in the outcome overall. So uh, I would say bridge therapy, the, the thought process behind it is very much changing at this point. So I would definitely consult with your anticoagulation clinic or expert at hand if a patient's thinking about, if you feel like the patient needs to be bridged. So in patients with mechanical heart valve atrial fibrillation or VTE at high risk for thromboembolism, the CHESS guidelines recommend bridging instead of no bridging during interruption of vitamin K antagonist therapy, so that's warfarin specifically. Typically the bridging agent used is anoxaparin, and I've, that initial table that, I, that we showed for you, risk factors for thromboembolism, we've taken out the high risk components there and put them there for you. So those are some of the patients that you would consider potentially bridging. The CHESS guidelines for bridging recommend a therapeutic dose of IV heparin bridge therapy, stopping that four to six hours prior to the surgery. If you're using therapeutic dose sub-Q low molecular weight heparin, so anoxaparin, again, is most typically used, make sure the last dose is administered about 24 hours before the surgery. And if you're using therapeutic dose uh, low molecular weight heparin, plus they're having a high-risk bleeding surgery, then resume the therapeutic dose of the low molecular weight heparin about 48 or 72 hours after surgery. So when you're talking about bridge therapy, this is where it can be, you know, can already be confusing for some patients about when do I hold it, when do I start it again, and then bridge therapy, now you have two different things going on. You have the, the anticoagulant that needs to be held and then the injectable anticoagulant needs to be started. When's that last dose and when do I resume them? So lots of counseling and education here. And then documentation in the chart as well so that we can, everybody, all the providers can be kind of reinforcing the same message. And with that, I'll let Courtney finish us up. So finishing up with direct oral anticoagulants, the first medication I wanted to talk about was dabigatran. 
and it's a direct thrombin inhibitor, and it works on free thrombin and clot brown thrombin, and therefore um, works on thrombin-induced platelet aggregation, and just to note, it is a prodrug. It doesn't carry a black box warning regarding premature discontinuation, leading to an increased risk of thrombotic events. It also carries a black box warning for spinal epidural hematoma, with risks including use of an indwelling catheter, other medications, if they've had a history of traumatic or repeated epidural, or spinal punctures, or a history of a spinal deformity or spinal surgery. Unfortunately, with these medications, since they are so new, in general, there's, it's really unknown what the optimal timing between administration of the medication, the last administration, and when a neuraxial procedure can be done. They suggest monitoring for signs and symptoms of neurolog neurological impairment and then considering the risks and benefits. Dabigatran can be used for the reduction of the risk of stroke and systemic embol embolism in patients with non-valvular AFib as well as the treatment of DVT and PE. Typically with um, renal function with a creatinine clearance above 30 milliliters per minute, the dose is 150 milligrams twice a day. However, there are dosing adjustments for decreased renal function, as well as patients with um, taking other, taking P-glycoprotein inhibitors. The big thing here that I wanted to point out for its pharmacokinetics is its half-life, which is about 12 to 17 hours. As with, you'll hear me say this multiple times while I'm going through these DOACs, is that these medications have no standard therapeutic monitoring. So there's no labs that we routinely check to see how well they're working or how well they're not working. Um, you could consider using the APTT or the ECT, the Ecarin clotting time, but generally these are not done in clinical practice and there's no role for the use of INR monitoring. So we're kind of we don't have any labs to check before we do a procedure to see if it's cleared properly and we can proceed. In terms of discontinuation, the package insert says look at the pharmacokinetics, so look at the half-life of the medication and consider their renal function, but again, the exact timing of when to stop it and when to do the procedure is rather unknown. The ASRA guidelines, they suggest discontinuing it four to five days before the procedure in high-risk patients and intermediate-risk patients. For low-risk patients, they suggest doing shared risk assessment, um, risk stratification, and management decision with all of the key players in this patient's anticoagulation. Because it is renally cleared in patients with end-stage renal disease, um, they suggest um, a six-day interval. And they do suggest using low molecular weight heparin bridge in those who are at high risk for VTE. Um, recently, there has been a reversal agent um, that can be used in an emergent situations where there's life-threatening or uncontrolled bleeding and there's some sort of emergency surgery or procedure needed. Hemodialysis is expected to remove um, dibigatran, but there's limited supporting evidence for the treatment of bleeding, and you could also consider platelet concentrates, but it is exciting that we do now have a reversal agent for this medication. In terms of resuming it, they suggest resuming it 24 hours after, but if they're at high risk for VTE, to do it 12 hours after a procedure. Moving on to river roxaban, it's a different DOAC that works on factor 10A. It does not require a cofactor, 
um, and inhibits free factor 10A and prothrombinase activity. So this indirectly inhibits platelet aggregation. Again, it carries similar black box warnings as compared to dabigatran with premature discontinuation increasing the risk of thrombotic events. Um, they say consider coverage with another anticoagulant if discontinued, and then also the risk for spinal epidural hematomas with neuraxial anesthesia or spinal puncture. Similar indications, reducing the risk of stroke and systemic embolism. <laughs> I need my caffeine, I haven't had it yet today. <laughs> In non-valvular AFib and the treatment of DVT and PE. You notice there is some different dosing based on the patient's creatinine clearance um, and indication. Oh, yikes. So big important thing to note for the pharmacokinetics is looking at its terminal half-life which is five to nine hours. Again, with, as with most DOACs, there's no routine therapeutic monitoring. You can consider the prothrombin time, the APTT or anti-factor 10A levels, but again, these are not routinely done in clinical practice. Um, so typically no lab monitoring, looking at the therapeutic effect. In terms of discontinuation, low-risk procedures typically not required but shared assessment, risk stratification, and management decisions, and the other providers involved in the patient's care. And you can consider discontinuing it at two half-lives prior to the procedure. So that would be 10 to 18 hours prior. For medium and high-risk procedures, they recommend discontinuing it three days prior. And if they're at risk for a VTE um, is rather high, then they consider, um, recommend a low molecular weight heparin bridge. Um, and to discontinue that 24 hours prior to the procedure. In terms of res reversal, um, I had to double check th um, the other day to make sure it hadn't been FDA approved, but it's under investigation at the moment, a specific antidote. The FDA wanted additional information before they would approve it. Um, so right now, um, your options for reversing the effects of rivaroxaban would be with a prothrombin complex concentrate or possibly using charcoal to decrease absorption. To resume it, 24 hours after in most, 12, af 12 hours after in those who are at high risk for VTE. And finally, apixaban is another factor 10A inhibitor, carries the same black box warnings. I did include some studies here looking at the spinal and epidural hematoma risk. And as you can see, most of these were for spinal epidural anesthesia for um, there were several for um, hip replacements, knee replacements, and there were several that were not related to a spinal procedure. None of them were specifically for, um, you know, again, they were from primarily with an epidural anesthesia um, situation. Their apixaban is indicated to reduce stroke, DVT prophylaxis, and hip or knee surgery, and the treatment of DVT and PE. Again, the dose changes depending on the indication. Um, there is some dosing adjustments recommended for patients depending on their age, body weight, and their um, renal function. The kinetics here, the half-life, is the most important thing to point out, and it's 12 hours. In terms of discontinuation, the package insert recommends for low, if they have a low risk of bleeding to discontinue 24 hours prior or a moderate or high-risk procedure, they recommend discontinuation 48 hours prior. 
The ASRA guidelines, low-risk procedures, again, consider two half-lives, shared um, assessment and risk stratification. With medium and high-risk procedures, they suggest three to five days before the procedure, and you're, you're probably thinking, well, three to five days, which is what, I'm, you know, what am I supposed to do? And I would consider the patient's renal function. If they have decreased renal function, then I would have a longer interval of, of holding the medication prior to a procedure. Again, I'm sounding like a broken record. No therapeutic monitoring is typically used. It does affect the INR, but we don't use that for monitoring. Um, the PT and APTT are not very useful, and we don't recommend anti-factor 10A levels. Reversal agents, still in the pipeline, um, so there is no antidote available currently, but I would keep your eyes out for that. So hemodialysis doesn't help, vitamin K or protamine, that doesn't help. You could consider using charcoal to reduce absorption, and you could consider an activated prothrombin complex concentrate or recombinant factor 7A. Similar resuming criteria, 24 hours in most, 12 hours in those who are at high risk for VTE. So this is the part where we need you to wake up a little bit more. We've given you 45 whole minutes. How much time do we have? Uh, okay, so we have five whole minutes. So Mr. Johnson is a 68-year-old male presents to the clinic for evaluation for an interventional procedure for his chronic low back pain. He has diabetes, an MI five years ago, um, hyperlipidemia, chronic back pain from a work injury, diabetic neuropathy, hypertension, and atrial fibrillation. He has no known allergies. He's on quite a few medications. Uh, most importantly, he takes warfarin. The pain clinic physician determines that the patient is appropriate for a medial branch block. Um, and so what are the patient's risk factors for increased risk of bleeding? Anyone think age, anticoagulation therapy, diabetes, A and C or E, all of the above? E, okay, awesome. At least one person's awake. Um, the patient decides to proceed with the procedure. How should the patient be counseled about his warfarin therapy? So A is the procedure is actually contraindicated because he's high risk. Do not proceed. B, patient is high risk and requires bridge therapy. C, in coordination with his cardiologist and warfarin prescriber, hold warfarin five days prior to the procedure or D, in coordination with other providers, hold the warfarin and start aspirin. Any, C? Good. True or false? Um, needle branch blocks and RFAs are considered high risk procedures. False. They're intermediate risk. Okay. And then our second case, Ms. Jones, a 72 year old female, presents to the clinic for interventional options for a vertebral fracture. She has osteoporosis with an acute fracture. <laughs> she has pneumonia, COPD, she's a hot mess. Um, <laughs> important to point out is, where is it, where is it, where is it? Oh, she's not, she has a provoked DVT. Why can't I see <laughs> anticoagulation? Um, oh, there we go. River, she's on Riverox fan 20 milligrams. Um, 
So what risk factors does the patient have for increased risk of bleeding? We have age, anticoagulation, history of falls, D, A, and C, or E, all of the above. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? E, all of the above. The patient elects to proceed with the interventional pain procedure. How would you counsel the patient about their rivaroxaban? A, the procedure is actually contraindicated because the patient is at high risk and on rivaroxaban therapy do not proceed. B, the patient is considered high risk and requires bridge therapy with anoxaparin. C, in coordination with other prescribers, hold the rivaroxaban for three days. Or D, you're going to hold the rivaroxaban and start aspirin. What are people thinking? C, in coordination with a rivaroxaban prescriber, hold the rivaroxaban. I would argue between A and B, actually. Um, since she's had a DVT within three months, she's at high risk for thromboembolism. So she may not be most appropriate for an elective pain procedure or for this pain procedure. Or since she is high risk, we would suggest bridging with anoxaparin. So some might say A, some might say B. Be a high risk procedure. Um, and there you go. You you beat us to our last question. Is it is kyphoplasty considered a high risk procedure? And that would be true. Because you're in the spinal cord. Vertebral augmentation, I would put in high risk. And then with that, we'll um, conclude. We'll happily take any questions. Oh, there is a really great table in the ASWR guidelines that puts all of this into one spot. So we highly recommend looking for that. And the link is in there. And then we want to say thanks to our friend, um, Dr. Stopey, who helped us with this presentation.